I'm Dr. Jay Lee Spian from Australia. This podcast series is part of the International Association for Suicide Prevention's 31st World Congress on the Gold Coast and sponsored by EveryMind, a leading Australian institute dedicated to the prevention of mental ill health and the prevention of suicide, and our MindFrame program aimed at supporting safe and effective communication. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast series. This particular episode is going to focus on workplace suicide prevention. I will be your host for this episode. I'm Sally Spencer Thomas. I'm a psychologist from Denver, Colorado, and I am thrilled to be part of this World Congress. Um, And even more thrilled that a big focus of this conference has been on workplace suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. I have with me two esteemed guests who have been very prominent throughout this Congress in sharing and facilitating conversations around workplace suicide prevention. Shane, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself real quickly? Thanks, Sally. And uh, hi, everyone. I'm Shane Connell. I'm the CEO of Living Works in Australia. So we provide suicide intervention and prevention training. And it's been a great World Congress so far, and I'm really looking forward to today. Yes, and thank you for so many, many ways that Living Works has supported workplace suicide prevention with your programming and all of your support. And Carmen, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Carmen Betteridge. I'm Director and Principal Psychologist with Suicide Risk Assessment Australia. We deliver supervision, training and consultation services specific to suicide prevention. Thank you. Um, In addition to being a psychologist, I'm also a person with lived experience. I lost my brother to suicide in 2004, and that put me on a journey to try to figure out some bold gap-filling ways to prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people. So I'd like to also acknowledge those of you uh, who are listening who also have various forms of lived experience, whether you are a loss survivor or someone who has lived through a suicide attempt or suicide thoughts or Perhaps you are someone who is standing shoulder to shoulder with someone who's fighting to stay. Um, We are glad you're here and we appreciate your expertise in our conversations. We also know that sometimes conversations like this can be upsetting or bring back memories or feelings that maybe you didn't plan to have today. If you find that is the case for you, please take care of yourself. There are many uh, crisis lines nationally and regionally that you can reach out to to put a plan in place for yourself or your loved one on how to get through this. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the original custodians of the land in which we all are. I am in Colorado, and in the specific place I am in Colorado, the original custodians of the land here were the Ute people. I pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future, and grateful for all Indigenous people that are contributing to this Congress during this week and always. So let's move on to our conversation about our takeaways from this Congress. I had a number of things that stuck out to me as I was listening to our experts and and just kind of the bantering that went back and forth in the sessions. And for, for one of the things that stuck out to me is I'm seeing a real shift from workplace suicide prevention being a a reaction, a reaction to a tragedy uh, with a one-off training or a one-off awareness day to workplaces, organizations, unions, those kinds of things, really taking it to the next level. And so I wanted to um, check in with each of you, Carmen and Shane, about your observations on how we're moving from a short-term reaction around workplace suicide prevention into long-term strategy. And Carmen, why don't we start with you? What were some of the things you heard? Um, And first of all, did you hear what I heard? And were some (laughs) of the things you heard in that space? Yes, well, I have to say I absolutely loved the first symposium, um, Symposium 20 from day three, 
and that was the Workplace Suicide Prevention Principles, Practice and National Guidelines Symposium. And in that symposium, all the speakers, so yourself, Sally, as well as Dr. Anthony um, Folgenuniti, and just coming through and thinking about the, the principles that were brought to have upstream, midstream and downstream interventions baked into the process of workplace suicide prevention. So thinking across all of those layers, I think was was really remarkable to see how it's being undertaken. Yeah, yeah to, to pull back from the reaction of the moment of crisis and look at the other ways that workplaces can take action to get in front mm, of that. Absolutely. And connecting in with the other services that interface with the workplace. So the reflections on EAP, the reflections on the other services that might be integrating, as well as those who may not be direct employees, but thinking about those consultants and other ways that the workplace might have interactions or impacts from people with mental health concerns and suicidality particularly. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I don't think the workplace has traditionally been thought of as a frontline part of our public health approach to suicide prevention. But when we start to dig into it, we absolutely can see the many ways um, workplace and workplace organizations can be incredibly helpful. Um, Shane, what do you think about moving from that short-term reaction to a longer-term strategy? What were some of the things that you noticed? Yeah, I agree with you, Sally. That was a, a takeaway for me from yesterday from that whole focus. And it's really pleasing to see, you know, we've certainly had experiences of, of getting that call, that last minute crisis call of quick, can you come and do something reactively because we've, we've got an issue here at work. I really love the way actually that you, Sally, put forward the idea that we can reach many more people through workplaces than we can through traditional mental health services because we've got so many more touch points. And I always am inspired by the work of Mates in Construction not only because it's doing so well in terms of the breadth and reach and now with their expansion into New Zealand, but the way they think about approaching workplace systems and structures, as you say, Sally. So, you know, hearing Chris Lockwood previously talk about, you know, government has important levers. And so we could, you know, incorporate workplace suicide prevention into policy, for instance, and just make it standard across the board. But actually workplaces have their own own levers and workplace authority and regulators are able to, to do things that mean we'll stop hearing that thing from managers, which is, well, and that's not really our business. You know, we really want to do well-being and make everyone feel good. But suicide prevention, oh, it's too tough. We don't want to go there. We're starting to hear, I think, less and less of that uh, and more now of being able to say, well, actually, we can incorporate this into our, our safety planning, um, into our policies and procedure documents, even into our onboarding. We're finding, you know, the Living Work Start program is, uh, has been mostly used by organisations to onboard their staff, which is exciting but surprising at the same time and I kind of feel like that's the way it's going. I really like your session, I've got to say as well, Sally, just to give you another plug, um, the Workplace Postvention Manager's Guide. And I know you were up really late last night doing, doing that. I was asking your questions and keeping you out of bed, and I'm sorry about that. But what I love about that is, you know, you talk about, you know, your personal experience. My lived experience of suicide actually was with my uncle only a few years ago, and sadly he passed away at work. And to see the experience he was a paramedic so to see the experience of that workplace then try to manage and try to communicate effectively and sort of respond and react when i'm sitting here doing the job that i do thinking actually we should have been having these conversations eight ten years ago not two days and three days or four weeks after you know a critical incident like that so obviously i'm motivated by that and workplaces are, and particularly first responders are a bit of a passion of mine and so uh, it was really exciting to see that as a focus yesterday that's one of the challenges looking for the motivators to have it embedded into a workplace program that it's not a reactive process that we are able to be a proactive perhaps leveraging that voice of lived experience as well to advocate for adaptive proactive approaches to suicide prevention rather than those reactive approaches for sure 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you brought up a couple of industries, right? You talked about construction, you talked about first responders. I think that was another theme that we heard throughout the World Congress is that we're moving beyond a one size fits all approach and that different industries, different types of work groups are starting to develop their own nuanced approaches. So we heard from like the cruise industry you know, and how much they've been impacted by COVID and what problems they had even before COVID and why they really need a customized approach. You know, we heard from several first responder groups, several construction groups, some healthcare. And so again, we're, we're taking this a, to a deeper level, looking at like those guiding principles and the, and the big buckets of practices that we all can agree on, but then how do we tailor it to different types of industries? Shane, what stuck out to you when you thought about that kind of more specific tailored approach to to workplace suicide prevention? Were there any stories or examples that made you think like, oh, that's interesting. Um, We should probably give some more thought into into what might be needed for specific kinds of groups. Yeah, there certainly was. I think for me, it was actually uh, the previous evening hearing from Gwen Churn, the new commissioner for veterans families, about the veteran experience and the military workplace and how, you know, it's such a highly trained, highly competent workforce but needing to really consider, as you say, Sally, what is adapted and what's um, suitable for that because there are so many uh, policies and procedures and guidelines that you need to follow. You know, there's, there's a certain way to climb a rope. There's a certain way to use a piece of equipment. Uh, and so that then translates into suicide prevention. There's a certain way to follow a procedure when someone is, uh, is struggling. And Living Works, you know, we're sort of picking up through this World Congress and through other conversations that there's two sides to that coin in that, you know, we need to be careful, I believe, in going down the road of, doing so much tailoring and so much adaptation that it becomes meaningless because there is science within the suicide prevention field that we know. There's evidence base that we know uh, works. And so that's a given. And so for our field, for instance, if you talk about education for, for people, it's a little bit like physical first aid. You don't change the way that you train or deliver CPR training. You know, it's the, the skills are the same. You're, you're on the ground with the, with the dummy doing all those kind of skills to keep someone safe from a heart attack or cardiac arrest. In suicide prevention, you feel the same. But if I don't feel as though in my workplace this is for me, then I'm not going to engage with it at first. I'm going to think it's only clinicians or it's only a certain group that this needs to worry about. Me, I'm a veteran or you know, I'm, a, I'm an active service personnel or I'm a construction worker or I'm a firefighter. You know, it's not my job. And so I, that's where I think that idea of tailoring and adapting needs to be about inviting people into the space to say that actually suicide prevention is everyone's business and it's yours. Because not only do you have colleagues, You've got people at home, you've got a daughter, you've got a son, you've got neighbours, uh, and these skills are universal. That's what I'm really picking up in, as you mentioned, some of the sessions of the World Congress here is that we're making that balance, I think, um, starting to get that right in terms of what needs to be adapted for people and what needs to be translated and what are the things that we know in the science that are evidence-based that are, are true for all. Very good uh, balance of the two. How do we stay true to the things that we know are effective based in the research And then how also do we adapt to the specific needs of certain communities? You know, I think about some of the environmental aspects of things that drive people to being overwhelmed or isolated. Those differ from different types of work settings. And so if we can make those true things, those things that we know that work, also feel like they're part of this larger context, then we've got a win-win. Carmen, what are your thoughts on on kind of these nuanced approaches that are emerging and and seeing seeing suicide in context of different types of workplace environments and different workplace cultures? Oh, I I definitely agree that we have to be uh, nuanced. I don't know that a one-size-fits-all off-the-shelf approach, and I I 100% agree. Core skills of compassion and capability are essential to all suicide, I guess, responses. When we start to look at factors like what was presented by 
Associate Professor Lei Fong Chen, she was talking about healthcare and the impact of demonstrating and speaking about stress and distress in the frontline health workforce. And what she was also talking about was sharing lived experience and being able to share the fact that stress, distress, suicidality, when it's shared from a leadership perspective, it can make a massive difference on reducing stigma and the willingness of people to come forward to talk about it. I think the ability for healthcare workers, including psychiatrists, including uh, paramedics, the ability to have leaders speak of their experience in that setting, in that context, within the environment, for example, COVID-19 was what she was specifically looking at, being able to come from that perspective and say, this can make a difference and we can all have a conversation, allows to break down the stigma so that people do reach out and that help seeking and help acceptance can move forward. So I 100% agree that we, the core components of compassion and being able to ask the question are central to any suicide response. But certainly that nuanced approach that comes from, for example, a healthcare setting has to be considered. And whether it's healthcare, whether it's supermarkets, whether it's you know, construction, there are elements of a work environment that need to be adapted and understood coming from the voice of the workers, of the employees, of those who are interfacing with that workplace. So yeah, very strong message. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. So let's first turn to COVID. So I'm thinking to the Mental Health Commission of Canada's briefing on their response to the COVID pandemic. And as she was talking, like so many pieces of what many of us talk about, the perfect storm of putting people in high levels of distress, despair, and suicide risk are connected to the workplace. You know, the juggling of the balances of multiple roles from working from home or the increased anxiety of of the exposure to the virus because you're an essential worker and you've got no choice, you got to go to work or all of the uncertainty related to the fluctuations in employment. I mean, there's just so much there that's connected to the workplace. And I think what it did is it leveled the playing field, if you will, like there's not a person on this planet that wasn't in some way affected by the pandemic. Um, And so it kind of dissolved the us, the leaders of the organization and you all the employees who are, you know, challenged or need need help or assistance, like everybody was in it together. Um, And so part of what COVID did is it humanized mental health challenges and kind of brought us all on the same level because there's not a person out there who wasn't at one point or another a little bit stressed by all of the changes and the uncertainty. Can you talk a little bit more, Carmen, about any other themes you heard about how COVID is changing the landscape for workplace mental health and suicide prevention? What were some of the other things that you took away? Well, there's takeaway, there's a couple particularly, and I, I guess I come back to what I found to be a really critical. So if there's any of the talks in the series, I really took a lot away from Dr. Lei Fong Chan's talk. And that was just how things appear to have gone so much more intensified. And so any of the socioeconomic disparities, gender disparities, all the elements seem to have been intensified by the way COVID um, kind of moved through. And I guess that the stresses within the workplace system, looking at these disparities, it emphasises that we can do so much more in changing the factors that are underpinning what might be an emerging mental health challenge or suicidality. I also think about the strengths that we bring in being able to talk about this more and and leveraging lived experience. And this has been, as you said earlier, a central theme throughout the Congress, being able to leverage lived experience to better understand how to meet some of those needs uh, and the strengths that allow us to truly meet uh, and respond to some of those difficulties. But COVID-19, the the one that you're referring to, I actually missed that talk, so I'm a bit bummed that I'd missed the Canadian um, discussion. 
But knowing COVID-19 has really shone a spotlight in this area, I think, yeah, we've got a lot to learn. Mm, yeah, I've been, you know, following as many of you have the reports from big industry thought leaders, you know, the Kinsey report, Forbes, uh, Harvard Business Review, and increasingly, this is the high level headline is that workplaces are concerned about substance use, um, other forms of addiction, mental health and suicide. And it's a conversation I've never heard at that level of intensity before. So I think it did kind of bring it, bring it to the forefront. I know that our phones have been ringing off the hook. Shane, I'm I'm assuming yours have too. Like there's so much demand now that people are coming out and saying I'm overwhelmed and it's really impacting my ability to work. Shane, what have you you seen uh, in terms of the impact of COVID or what did you hear throughout the sessions? Yeah, we're definitely seeing that, Sally. I think our demand has increased threefold. So it it is really just exploded. And I think COVID has, as you say, it's, it's leveled the playing field, but it, it's done a better job maybe than any campaign ever could of raising, you know, mental health awareness and suicide prevention awareness with the community. I think everyone is now, you know, concerned and conscious of, of mental health impacts. So I was interested by Professor David Gunnell's presentation last night about, you know, where to from here in terms of research around COVID. There's a, I think there's a lot of, you know, modelling that's happening. He mentioned uh, Natika's talk yesterday about the the Canadian Mental Health Commission and what they're doing to sort of support workplaces now and what will happen around, you know, flexible work arrangements and working from home and wanting to make sure that we manage that in the right way and consider the mental health impacts of, of those changes. And so from our point of view, it's really interesting to see the research field sort of adapting and moving and trying to move a lot maybe quicker than, than we have in the past, needing to be able to translate the knowledge that we get as we see what is happening with rates, what is happening with ED presentations, what are groups that are impacted, for instance, young people, I know, um, for instance, young females in Australia has, has become prominent recently. And so what do we do then to respond and make sure that in the midst of trying to manage a pandemic, we're also trying to manage our, uh, you know, our, our well-being and our, our suicide prevention activities as well. So it's been interesting, you know, workplaces, lived experience, COVID, I think men and boys, you know, the, the themes that have really come through over the last few days are, uh, are certainly, um, you know, the right ones for, uh, for this World Congress to be tackling. And I think tying Great. into that, I can see oral 10. So there was, that was on data measurement, which is what uh, one of the ones that I sat in. I hadn't expected to gather so much from data as I did from yesterday, but there was a number of talks in that, that oral presentation or the group of our oral presentations. And one of them was by Mrs. Penelope Sweeting, and she talked about using the human factors analysis and classification system to understand preventable suicide in hospitals. And that real-time data analysis, but being able to unpack systems to look at where errors and changes can happen within that system. And while it's not particular to COVID, it also looks at why we need to be gathering data, why we need to use data, the ability to leverage real-time data as well. And that ties into a couple of the other talks as well. But, But the importance of knowing that we are representing data accurately, that we're communicating it accurately, and that it really fits in and guides the decisions that we're making going forward. Yeah, I think it's the blend of the science and the stories that's going to get us there. The science, of course, helps us, reassures us that maybe we're on the right path or gets us off the wrong path and informs us on how we should approach different things. And it's the stories that move the hearts and gets us connected to this issue on a much deeper level. And workplaces relate on both accounts to come to the table to really look at the science and hear the stories, but they're coming now. So I'm going to come to each of you in just a second with your thoughts on how lived experience is going to be impacting our approaches to workplace suicide prevention 
and postvention moving forward. Uh, before I do that, I just want to remind everybody that this is an online Congress, and so all sessions have been recorded. If you've missed one, or maybe, uh, you know, like me, you were sleeping when they were going on and you really wanted to be there, but you also needed your sleep, you have access to all the videos for up to 12 months, and which is a huge benefit to having this Congress organized in the way that it has. That's just amazing. We wouldn't even have had that if we were live, because we would have had to make choices between our sessions, and now we don't have to choose, which is excellent. You know, for me, I think back uh, in terms of the lived experience voice, I think back to like, you know, 2013, when I just started to stumble into really engaging with workplaces. And I think about Juan V. Hill, my, my firefighter, who was like the first one to stand up with his shaking voice and say, this has impacted me. You know, and the courage it took to be the first one in his fire department to do that and the tsunami effect that he has had by showing the positive impact of being courageous in that space. You know, I, I know everybody has their own story, but for me, that's one that really sticks out to me when you're the first one to start to say, uh, yeah, of course it's happened to me. Yeah. And it's happened to me in a really big way. Um, I'm guessing this is also true for some of you. You just create space for other people to come forward and leadership can really do that in, this, in the same way by sharing their own lived experience stories to really validate these issues. Uh, Shane, what have you seen in terms of the power of, of lived experience in your work and throughout the sessions? Yeah, uh, look, I, one of the sessions I would recommend to people if you didn't get a chance to see is the firefighter experience from Australia, just while you give your experience of, of the United States. And so we had uh, Tracy Cast, the manager of mental health services for Real Fire Service in New South Wales, and Alex Mulos, who's a, a wellbeing officer and a firefighter. And to see them bring in their experience from both perspectives and work together to be able to support a workforce in the same way that you mentioned, Sally, is uh, with the example that you give. Uh, it was a really great presentation to sort of see that build and see that kind of flicker of an idea to say, actually, we can do more here and we can involve everybody in this and, and actually you know, get involved. The most inspiring session for me around this, though, yesterday was uh, Associate Professor Marie Toombs from the University of, New of Queensland. She's just won the, uh, the Life Award in Australia. And so, uh, you know, I think given that uh, IASP is held here, the World Congress here in Australia, it's so good that we include Indigenous voices. Marie's an Indigenous lady and, and spoke last night about identity and connection and acknowledgement for Indigenous people in Australia. And having that experience of spending two or three or four years out to, to community and really hearing their lived experience. And funnily enough, being a researcher and asking, okay, I'm going to do research here at University of Queensland. What do you, what do you need? What would you as a community like to see with your lived experience academics and researchers focus on? And not surprisingly, uh, across the board, what came out really strongly that she said last night was, well, we've got an issue with suicide. You know, we've got people here who are dying. Uh, we don't know what to do and we'd like some support with that. And so you know, she has an incredible story herself and a lived experience that she brings to have, I'm sure she doesn't mind me saying, because she tells it openly, having quite a challenging start to life and then turning around now being a professor and having a, you know, a daughter in medical school. It's, it's an incredible example of in one generation having such an immediate change. But I think that's why it keeps her so grounded as an academic and really open to hearing and involving genuinely lived experience in the work, not in a kind of outside advisory group way and yes, we'll hear you, but actually we're just going to do what we want it really informing the outcome. So always inspiring and pretty, uh, pretty excited and happy to be able to call Marie a, a mentor. Yeah, those bold storytellers uh, really become, you know, in many ways, the champions that pull us all into the reality, uh, the human experience of these things in a way that data can't. So it is a good combination uh, to bring the two together as this Congress has done so well. Uh, Carmen, what are your thoughts? What do you see as the role of lived experience uh, moving forward in our workplace suicide prevention, intervention and postvention efforts? Yeah, I think from the symposium, the first symposium of the day, 
that was looking at principles, practices and national guidelines, that throughout each of the talks, the voice of lived experience was reflected in the evaluation. It was reflected in how people brought you know, evidence in why we need to actually embed this as a long-term strategy, as a long-term process. And I guess I took it from each of the speakers, including yourself, that if without having that voice and without hearing this, we don't have the ability to pivot and shift and to move dynamically and to identify when, and, and I think you said this yourself, when things are, are traveling, we need to shift, we need to be able to be responsive and shift as it's, as it's occurring and that the data and, and the voices support us to do that. I think throughout the whole Congress, though, I've heard many of those conversations. And so from LGBTQIA, plus a lot of the, the conversations are that we can't make a difference for the people that we're working with unless we listen to the people that we're working with. So, yeah. Yes. I, thank you for bringing up that whole bit because it just made me think that, you know, I think the conversation is shifting broadly throughout the, the world around suicide prevention from our medicalized model of mental illness and getting treatment, which made it a very narrow focus on you know, how we're understanding this and then who can help. It's just the medical providers who can help if that's our framework. So now we're looking at it much more broadly and even I would say as a social justice issue. And if you listen to the people with lived experience, most people that I listen to don't always connect their suicidal despair to a mental health condition, but they will talk about the suffering that is occurring because of discrimination or trauma or abuse in their in their community or in their family of origin or, or things like a really poor work design where they have no autonomy. They have a serious imbalance between their effort and their reward, or they have a horrible relationship with their supervisor. You know, all the counseling in the world isn't going to fix that kind of stuff. We've got to look at some of the environmental pieces as well. And it's the people who are living through those systems that are going to tell us that situation over there, that is seriously toxic. (laughs) We've got to do something about that. And so I think it's a combination of the two, help people connect to supports while also listening to them about what what in the environment is driving that despair. Um, I think we're about out of time at this point. This has been such a rich summary of the last uh, few days together. The relationships that we've built here, um, I know I've got a long list of follow-ups of new ideas and papers I need to read and all kinds of things. That's what this Congress does. Even when we are remote from each other, uh, we can still do that um, to really galvanize our energy and, and push the momentum forward. So thank you, Shane, and thank you, Carmen, for participating. And thank Thank you to the uh, YASP uh, staff for organizing this and the sponsors. It's been truly incredible to uh, kind of crystallize some of our thoughts and learnings in this session, and I hope you found it helpful. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, all.